0: Well, it's always wonderful to hear from our missionaries, isn't it? And uh, Bo and Michelle are just a terrific uh, couple. Uh, I'm going back, and boy, does that bring back memories too. I'm going back pretty close to 25, 30 years when this young lady, high school student, came into my office and been raised up in another religious system, and uh, she heard the gospel, the grace of God. And I had the great joy of leading Michelle to the Lord, and uh, from that day on, boy, she was just like a flint, you know, where, where she was heading. She didn't have any encouragement in her home. You know, some of our, many of our young people have encouragement of mom and dad and others, and uh, she didn't have anyone encouraging her. But she was standing true, and it wasn't easy. Then she went off to Word of Life Bible Institute. And that's where she met Bo, and the rest is history and I was interesting to hear that Faith is going to Word of Life Bible Institute as well uh in in the fall so uh thanks for all you did did for them because uh, they're a wonderful couple, and we saw them just develop through the years we had an uh, internship program in the church that we had all of our missionaries become part of and uh just thrilled to see because they they haven't had an easy uh Uh, life over there, to say the least, but they sure have been steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding uh, in the work uh, of the Lord. And it's a good investment of your uh, missionary dollar. Okay, I'm going to invite you, if you would, to uh, uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 13. Uh, We're going to eventually get there just after a few introductory thoughts and comments. We had a great message last uh, Sunday. By Pastor Rob on the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. And I remember I was, uh, we had just gotten home the week, uh, a few days before, so we were here for Good Friday and Easter and just uh, rejoiced in the great word. And as I was walking out the aisle, oh, there's one of the brothers here, an older gentleman as well. Uh, he kind of came up, and he said to me, You know, he never. Fails to deliver, and I thought that's a great comment in it. It is true. I'd agree with him. He never fails to deliver because he does his homework, uh, intellectually, spiritually, every otherwise. I can never remember a time sitting under Rob that I didn't get fed with the Word of God, and uh, just always fresh. And we appreciate him so much, and glad he's getting a little bit of rest and relaxation now. So this morning, what I'd like to do is uh, continue with that thought of the resurrection and then go from there. So it's the same day, it's the uh, Resurrection Sunday. Rob talked about the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and um, that would have been probably afternoon, late afternoon. Uh, But then later on that same day, but in the evening, uh, the disciples, 10 of them, we uh, were in a room and they were locked up. They had locked the doors, pulled the bars shut because they were fearful. They were disillusioned. Uh, they were fearful. They were disappointed. They didn't know what the future held. They probably were thinking, legitimately so, if they did this to our master, uh, then why should I expect anything else different at all? And then as they were there, and Judas Iscariot, he wasn't there any longer. A couple days before, he had gone out and betrayed the Lord Jesus. Now, he went out and he hanged himself, committed suicide. And uh, Thomas, uh, we don't know where he was, but he wasn't with the disciples. So it took him another week to get it together and uh, join them. And remember, he told the Lord, except I see the nail prints and the spear print in his side, I will not believe. But he went a whole week that he didn't have to do if he just would have been in church that Sunday night, you know? So, you know, when you talk about going golfing or playing tennis this summer at 9.30 on Sunday morning, you know, do it later. Do You never, he never fails to deliver. And I often think, and I think Rob does, though I've never asked him, that you miss people, not because you love them and just miss them, but... There's something being part of the atmosphere of the local church, being together and under the word. So you set your priority and be a committed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are, the fearful disciples, and all of a sudden, because of that new composure of the resurrected body, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Is your body getting weary? Are you getting some aches and pains? Is it getting tired? Someday we're going to have a body. Did you know that? Just like Jesus. And in this body, he doesn't knock down the door. He simply walks through the walls. How cool is that? huh? And maybe he just kind of jumped from Emmaus to Jerusalem. I don't know. But anyway, it's a different body a spiritual body. It's a powerful body. It's a glorified body. And you're going to have one like his body someday too, if you know the Lord as your savior. And what's the first thing he says to his fearful uh, disciples who are so discouraged? He says, shalom alechem, peace be to you. That's more than just a hi or a hello, a casual greeting. It's a very meaningful greeting uh, in the Hebrew. And then he made this statement after he said those words, Uh, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, Jesus, for the next 40 days, is going to appear at different times in different places, teaching his disciples, ministering to them. You say, well, what did he talk about? Well, you can read about some of it. John 21, for instance, is uh, there are five different teachings right there. But there's a lot of in John 20 is another one. And so we've got a lot of them. But um, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, remember he was a medical doctor and he was a missionary. He was a medical missionary. And thirdly, he was a historian. And so he then writes a second book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Gospel, John. Then he wrote the Book of Acts. And the Book of Acts is the one history book of the New Testament. And so you would expect a historian who's gathering all the facts and uh, truths, and then he penned those words by uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's how he summarizes the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus went up to heaven. And before the resurrection, the crucifixion, we preach about the finished work of Christ, where he paid the debt for all of our sins and he cried out on the cross, it is finished. Nothing more to do or to pay for the sins of mankind. But then when he ascends up to heaven, he's been doing for the last 2,000 years the unfinished work of Christ. And that's his ministry as high priest. That's his ministry praying for you and he knows every heartache you've ever been through and ever will be through, every need you have, because he was in all points tempted like we are, yet what? Apart from sin. And so as our great high priest, who is a human, he sympathizes, enters into our suffering, into our griefs. But then for his ascension, uh, before his ascension, for 40 days he's ministering to his disciples. And Luke summarizes those 40 days with one sentence, On the screen, Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. There was no question that he was dead, he was buried, and now he is alive in his new glorified body. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, I wonder what you think it means that says he was speaking about the kingdom of God. You ever wonder what he said, what he thought, what was on his heart? Well, I don't think we have to imagine too much there. I think there are some clues. For instance, uh, focusing in on the teaching of Jesus, when it says that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God, I think the focus was what you and I, if we've been around church very long at all, uh, that we called the Great Commission, the Great Commission, uh, and that's when Jesus told his disciples five times and near the end of his time on earth before he ascended to heaven what he wanted them to do, what their mission was. And you and I know a man's last words when he knows time is running out of his life on earth. He chooses his words very carefully. I've been with a lot of dying people. They don't talk about the little frills, the little follies. They're they're talking from their heart. They know time is short. And so they weigh carefully what they want to say. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not going to die again, but he's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to leave earth. And so he's sharing with them what is really uh, the the thing that is mostly on uh, his heart. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke... And John are the four writers, and the five books are the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts. Luke wrote two. He wrote Luke, and he wrote uh, the Book of Acts as well. Now, while some may be tempted to think that these were all on the same uh, occasion that they were speaking about the Great Commission, in other words, there is one event, the Great Commission, going to all the world and that it was simply spoken five different ways by these men who wrote about it, that's simply not true. If you do a careful study of each one at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the beginning of Acts, uh, you'll see that they were all spoken in a different place at a different time, and so that what you have is not one truth presented by five men. uh, You have These truths, this one truth presented in five different locations. In other words, Jesus kept repeating himself. Now, not that you mothers know anything about that. When you correct a child, sometimes you have to what? Do it over and over and over again. Gets kind of laborious. Why do you do that? Because you're a nag? No, you do that because you know what you want to impart Certain things you want to impart to that child of yours is very important to you. You want them to really get it, so you don't just say it once and then you don't say it again. You say it at this occasion, that occasion, that occasion, that occasion, that occasion, and on and on it goes. And that's what Jesus did. It tells me that all he had to do was say it one time. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we pay attention to him if he said it once? That all he needs to say it, but. We know that sometimes we just have to be told over this truth over and over again. And I think that's uh, what has happened here. So there are accounts of something that Jesus said five different times. Now, before His suffering on the cross, the Lord allowed us the phenomenal experience. And I use that word phenomenal. I wish there was a more superlative word I could use of listening to the conversation Amongst the Trinity. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you love just to put your ear up and hear the Father talk to the Son and to the Holy Spirit? And we're allowed to do that. Uh, Scripture gives us uh, that experience. And so you go even 700 years before uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there the eternal Son of God. Uh, with his eternal Father and eternal Holy Spirit, there's a little discussion uh, going on. And the prophet Isaiah records it for us in chapter 6. And he has a vision of uh, the holy, holy God of the universe and how they needed that fresh vision. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. Remember where you were when JFK was assassinated? I know exactly where I was. I remember the depression. Just the feeling our president is gone. He's dead. Somebody shot him. And there's kind of a, a darkness over the United States at that time. That's the way it was when you lost a good king like Uzziah, because not all were good kings. And then there was a special breed of angels that appeared. They were called the seraphims. With two wings, they covered their eyes. With two wings in the presence of a holy God, they covered their feet. With two wings, they began flying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the reaction was that I am an unclean man. I dwell in the midst of unclean people. I have unclean lips. Then the angel came and symbolically with the coal cleansed him. And then the voice comes from heaven, the voice of God. Here it comes, whom shall I send, and who will go, notice, for us? Isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, God says, who will go for us? Because, you know, the Jewish people, they believe in monotheism, but they don't believe in a triunity God. Muslim, Islam believes in a monotheistic God, but they don't believe in the trinity. And the Old Testament does not teach the Trinity. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it allows for the Trinity. Do you understand the distinction? And so when he says, who will go for us, that's a plural first person pronoun. And that's the Trinity speaking. God the Father, God the Son, and and God the Holy Spirit. And so the holy God of the universe reveals his heart here, which has to do with lost, though he is the holiest of holies, He is concerned with sinful people, and he wants them to know of his redemptive love and forgiveness. Let me make a statement here. His people don't just go and preach. His people are sent. Mark that down, tuck it away, we'll come back to it later. Now, we go to the evening of his betrayal and arrest. And Jesus, now this is 700 years forward from Isaiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, is uh, going to tell his disciples what he wants them uh, to do. But he lets us get inside and hear what the Son says to the Father in the conversation. In John 17, the word world appears 18 times in 26 verses. So it says something about the world Jesus is teaching, about the world system and the, the, the world people. And then Jesus says to the Father in verse 18 of John 17, As you, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the disciples, into the world. Jesus' disciples do not simply go and preach the gospel. Jesus' disciples are sent to preach the gospel. I'm repeating it again. So make sure you get you you lay hold of that. What comes forth from our lips is a revelation of what is in our heart. And our God, as he reveals what is in his heart, he's a missionary God, he's got a missionary heart. And we see that from cover to cover in the holy word of God. It's focus, So that it tells me if I want to have a heart of God, then I've got to have a heart for the lost people around the world. If God's heart is a missionary heart, and I want to be close to God's heart, and I think you do, why else would you be here this morning? Because you've got a desire to be close to the heart of God. And if you want that, then you've got to have a missionary heart. And so that's the focus of Jesus. Now, we go to the broader thing and to the Bible itself, and we see the focus of the Bible, the focus of the Bible. Now, if anyone has ever been to Bible college or or seminary, go to the next slide. If anyone has ever been to the, the Bible College Seminary Christian uh, uh, University, you know the name Dr. Henrietta Mears. Uh, I read her book 60 years ago uh, when I was in uh, college and seminary. She was the premier uh, authority on Christian education. So if you wanted to know about Christian education, say, in the local church, you read Henrietta Mears. She wrote one book that I think is the, uh, at the top. Uh, what the Bible is all about. That's quite a title, isn't it? And she makes this profound statement. The Bible does not talk about hundreds of different things. The Bible talks about one thing in hundreds of different ways. I like that statement because there's one thing the Bible really talks about. Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, John, Revelation... Genesis, the revelation. And the one thing I think we could summarize, you may choose a different word, that's fine, but it's the word or concept of redemption, that this is a God's love letter to a people who are lost and perishing and on their way to hell. And this is God's love letter saying, I love you, I love every one of you. Though you have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I love you. In fact, I love you so much that before this world was ever created, we had and new fall was coming. Sin would be rampant, but we provided a lamb. For Jesus Christ is the lamb of God, what? Slain before the foundation of the world. And so the whole Bible speaks about this matter uh, of redemption. Now, you remember immediately after man's fall into sin in Genesis 3, that God there go, gave, gave the proto-evangelium. Don't let that word at the top there scare you. It's not a scary word, proto-evangelium. Proto means first. Evangelium simply means gospel. So here is what God is telling us. Right when man fell into sin, and then he pronounces the curse as a result of that fall into sin, how man would suffer, how the woman would suffer. He even is going to talk about how the serpent's going to suffer. And, uh, but in all of that, he gives the proto-evangelism. He gives the first gospel. Here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, he's talking to the serpent, he's talking to the devil, and between your offspring and her offspring. Who's his offspring? Well, it's the demonic world. It's the demons. It's the world. It's the people who don't know God and don't embrace the redemption and the gospel. And he says, he shall bruise your head, devil, he the seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? There's only one person ever born in the history of the universe that can be called the seed of the woman. Every person here is born of the seed of man. Only one person was born seed of the woman. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, born of the Virgin Mary. And as a result of not being born of the seed of man, he had no taint of sin whatsoever upon him. He had no sin nature. The rest of us uh, rebels are all born with a sin nature. And we automatically sin because we have the nature to sin. And that's why we sin. And so God looks down and he says, uh, the, the serpent himself is going to bruise the seat of the woman's heel, foot. But the seat of the woman, Christ, is going to bruise the head of the serpent. What's the difference? Big difference. The heel is kind of like you're temporarily set aside. But when you bruise the head, it's the fatal blow. And so at the cross, this was fulfilled when the serpent bruised the heel of Jesus. But after the second coming of Christ, after the millennial kingdom, when we get ready for the new heavens and new earth, that's when the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, will cast Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, when he will cast Satan into the lake of fire forever. And he'll be there for all of eternity. And so this is known as the proto-evangelium. It gives two truths they didn't have before then. The one truth it gives is the curse on mankind. We are born and we are cursed because of our sin. But it also talks about a provision of a Savior. It gives us the gospel. The Proto-Evangelium gives us the first gospel about one is coming who is the seed of the, the woman, virgin born. And that's what Dr. Mears, I think, was talking about when she writes about the Bible talks about one thing and that one thing, Genesis to revelation uh, is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me move on to a second point here. Not only the focus of Jesus the focus of the Bible, but the focus of Israel and the old Testament scriptures, the focus of Israel and the old Testament scriptures. I was in uh, jail. I get picked up and sent to jail on Tuesday, um, Again, uh, as a minister of the gospel, okay? So we've got to clarify that. And one of the questions they had there, we are in a discipleship group, one of the questions they had is, well, I understand Christ came, died, and rose again, and we need to believe, and okay, I get that. But what about Moses? What about Abraham? What about people in the Old Testament? They were saved a different way, weren't they? No, I said, they weren't saved a different way. Saved the same way you and I are saved. No person has ever been saved apart from faith. Just read Hebrews 11, by faith Abel, by faith Abraham, by faith, by faith, by faith. Everyone must have faith or trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is in the Bible, and I think it's a key uh, hermeneutical principle, that when you study the Bible, you've got to understand. Now, catch us, get this phrase, the progress of revelation. It's one of the key phrases in biblical hermeneutics, uh, uh, interpretation. So all along the way, beginning back with Adam, then we keep on going Noah, and we see Abraham 2,000, Moses 1,500, there's David 1,000, Isaiah 700, and then we go all the way down to the Gospels, which is still under the economy of the law, and there appears another prophet that we'll talk about in just a moment. But uh, through all this means here, as God's giving more revelation of himself, the more revelation he gives, the more responsibility we have. In other words, Abraham knew more than Noah. Moses knew more than Abraham. David knew more, and it goes on down. The the apostles knew more than those in the Old Testament. And now you think of the church, we've had the whole canon of Scripture completed, Genesis to Revelation. We've got a lot of responsibility. But every time we go in the Bible, what do we see? We see one thing. We see redemption. We see the love that a holy, righteous God has for a lost and dying world. I was having lunch with a businessman in Orlando about a month, uh, eight weeks ago, and uh, he asked me. He says, "Do you ever read through the Bible in a year?" I said, "Yeah, I do that." I said, "I don't do it every year, but yeah, I've done it quite a few times. I'm doing it now, as a matter of fact." He's, oh, he's. You're not in Leviticus like I am, are you? I said, "Yeah, I am." He's. I cannot wait to get out of that mess. I mean, he said, it is really draining on me. And uh, I was a little surprised at first because I love Leviticus. Uh, So I didn't throw the coffee on him or anything. We just uh, (laughs) uh, talked nicely. But, But I was thinking in my head, Leviticus gives us a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look at the first five chapters. You have the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Every one of those offerings picture who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And they're beautiful pictures for us. We learn much from them. Leave the offerings. Go to Leviticus 16. What do you find in Leviticus 16? You know what you find, I hope. You find the Passover lamb. You You find Yom Kippur as well. In Leviticus 16. What happens on Yom Kippur? It's one of the great holidays of the Jewish people to this day. Yom Day Kippur covering. It's the day of covering. It's the day of atoning. The sins of the Old Testament people were covered. They were not washed away. They couldn't sing that my sins have been washed away. They were covered until God's lamb came, right? And then he put away sin once and for all, as far as the east is from the west. And so when you come to the day of atonement, it's beautiful. The one goat is taken and it is slain and the blood is shed as a type of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. What happens to the second one? The scapegoat, he puts his hand on the head of the scapegoat as a symbolic gesture of us and our sins being transferred to the scapegoat. What happens to the scapegoat? It's chased out of the land and never to return. And it was a beautiful picture of their sins and iniquities who I remember no more, or as far as the east is from the west, so has God separated the sins from us. So Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, it's beautiful. I don't stop there. Go to Leviticus 23, now, I know you know what's in Leviticus 23 because you're not a Philistine, okay? So, you got it down on your head, and I'm not going to embarrass you. I would never do that. But you have in Leviticus 23, I think, one chapter that gives the greatest snapshot of the history of Israel, what was really important to them, and the prophetic teaching in typological form of Israel's future right to the end. You say, well, how does he do that? He does it through what are called the seven feasts of Jehovah. But they're all pertaining to Israel. Don't see yourself in there. You're not there. The church isn't there. It's for Israel. What are they? Passover, New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, a sacrifice for us. I'm not reading into it. Unleavened bread. What comes three days after the Passover feast of first fruits? What do you read about in 1 Corinthians 15? That we are the first fruits of the resurrection. Now go 50 days over after Passover. What's the fourth feast? Pentecost. When did the day of Pentecost arrive? 50 days after the crucifixion. It's not by accident, okay? Now what do you have? A gap. Why do you need a gap? Because the church comes along. It's not presented there, but that's the gap. There's a gap now in Israel's history. Now what happens? Now you have the Feast of Trumpets. What's the Feast of Trumpets do? It calls Israel back to the land. Then what do you have? You have the Day of Atonement. It is in that seven-year tribulation, Israel is made aware of her Messiah, whom they crucified at his first coming, but at his second coming, they will look at him, and all Israel shall be saved. And then what do you have? The Feast of Tabernacles. What happens in the Feast of Tabernacles? Jesus comes back, and what does he do? He tabernacles among us. He lives among us in what is called the millennial kingdom. That's Leviticus twenty-three. It's beautiful: Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, Day of Atonement, tabernacles, and all this is a beautiful picture of God's prophetic typological dealings with the nation of Israel that mean also so much, uh, so much to us, and so. Uh, you, you take all those things we just talked about. Now, advance yourself just a few hundred years, and now you're going over to Israel, and you're down in the, uh, the Jordan River, you're up in Galilee. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole bunch of sinners like you and me. They're hanging out there. They're looking for, for some hope. And all of a sudden, there's a prophet there, and he's preaching. Boy, he's a strong preacher too. His name is John the Baptist, remember? Still living under the to- Old Testament economy, by the way. Old, a New Testament economy doesn't start the Acts 2, day of Pentecost. So he's still under the old, he's an Old Testament prophet in reality. And so he looks off and he sees someone different, and what does he say? Behold, class, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you think they knew what the Lamb of God, was? burnt offering, meal offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering? Do you think so? Do you think they Passover, Unleavened Bed, First Fruits, uh, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement? They knew exactly when he said the Lamb of God. Here was the fulfillment of God's plan of what? Redemption. Dr. Mears was right. Redemption is the one thing that occupies the focus of God uh, throughout the Bible. Now, let's move quickly here. Let's go on to the next one. Now we're going to move from Israel and the Old Testament to the focus of the church and the New Testament, and I'm going to try to uh, uh, get done with this within the, uh, within the next hour or so. so. Yeah, come on, relax. That's, that's a joke, okay? Okay, so, so far we've seen the focus of Jesus taking the message of love to lost humanity. Uh, the message is consistent. With the heart of God expressed throughout the Bible, the proto-evangelism, when our first parents rebelled and sinned against uh, God, proclaimed through the Old Testament by the prophets, the scriptures, proclaimed and affirmed by John the Baptist, and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ when he suffered on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And then later on, the church then begins in Acts chapter 2, where we see the same truth of a loving God that we normally refer to now as missions, quote unquote. Though, uh, I love this statement, I think I first heard it from M. R. Dehan. Uh, if you remember M. R. Dehan, you're old, okay? Because he was one of the finest Bible teachers, and he started the Daily Bread. And a lot of you know the Daily Bread devotional. Well, M. R. Dehan was really a medical doctor, and uh, but he was a great Bible teacher. And he used to say this, the wisdom of the age, now listen, the wisdom of the age is to find out which way God is moving and to move with him. That makes a lot of sense to me. Does it make sense to you? I want to be a wise person. Don't you? I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be out of the loop. I want to be a wise person. I want to adjust my mind, my heart to God's heart and mind because he's the ultimate wisdom. So the wisdom of the age is to find out, God, which way are you moving? Because I want to move with you. Now, do you know which way God is moving? If I said to you, write down in one simple statement, which way God is moving? What would be your answer? Think about it for a second. Now, we're not left to have to debate it. You remember after uh, the early chapters of Acts, remember there was a problem that arose. It was the major problem in the New Testament church. What was their number one problem, the infant New Testament church? It was on the protecting the unity of the body of Christ. Because the Jews expected a Jewish church. Gentiles expected what? Gentile church. Samaritans expected what? They weren't welcomed by anybody. A Samaritan church. So what do you have God doing? On the day of Pentecost, he does something miraculous. One of these was that he gave a a, a supernatural gift of speaking in an unknown tongue. Speaking in a language you didn't know, never studied, but you spoke fluently in. The Jews saw it. Everyone saw it. They were amazed. These bunch of hillbillies uh, from West Virginia, where they were speaking now uh, in in their own language like they were very educated people. Now, if that wasn't enough, then they went to uh, Cornelius, a Gentile. What happened to him? It says, the same thing happened to them that happened to us Jews, what? In the beginning. Same thing that happened to the Jews, happened to the Gentiles. They spoke in tongues. Now, in between the two, what do you have? Acts chapter 8, when they go up into Samaria, you know what happened there? They spoke in tongues. What was God doing? He was showing them that whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, or a Samaritan, there's only one body of Christ composed of Jew, Samaritan, and, uh, and Gentile alike. And so God was protecting of the unity uh, of his Bible. Now, after they heard this argument by, by Paul and Barnabas at the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, James is the chairman of the council, so he's moderating the council, and they're bringing all these different uh, thoughts in, and Barnabas and Saul present the most uh, uh, strongest argument, and they testify how God just poured out his spirit among the Gentiles, uh, Acts chapter 11. And so then James kind of brings the whole thing to conclusion. What does he say? Next thing on the slide. Simeon hath first declared that God did visit the nations in order to call out from them a people for his name. What is God doing? He's calling out a people from the nations of the world for his name. The wisdom of the ages, find out which way God is moving, move with him. You want to be wise? You want to move with God? Which way is he moving? Assuming had first declared that God is, is visiting the nations of the world and calling out a people for his namesake. Jesus said about six months earlier, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And interesting, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, made up of two Greek words, ek, out of, kalao, to call. What is the church? The church is a called out people from the world. That's it. God is calling out a people from all ethnic groups of the world into this one body called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the ages is to find out which way God is moving to move with him. Jesus said, I will build my church. gates of hell will not prevail against it. Simeon had first declared how the God visited the nations of the world to call out from them a people for his namesake. There you have it. You want to be wise? You want to move with God? You've got to have the same missionary heart that God has. If you don't, you're missing out. If you don't, you're not following the wisdom of God. It's just as, as profound and as simple uh, as that is itself. Now, let me move quickly, then I've, I've got to be done. Now we're getting into the message. All that was introduction, okay? <laughs> no, we're, we're going we're gonna to get you. Uh, you got reservations at Wimpy's, and we'll get you there. Okay, so Acts 13. Uh, Verse 1, let me just make a few statements, and and, uh, we're actually doing pretty good. Okay, now, Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, along a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This begins the missionary movement. So this would be in Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey. Then you come back, you have the Council of Jerusalem, then you have the second missionary journey. So it's going to go throughout uh, the Asian world at that time. Uh, Then eventually, uh, it's going to go out into Europe, and then what happens years later, it's going to come to America. So all this is just an ongoing thing of taking the gospel into all the world and making disciples. So we call it missions, and simply stated, missions is the work God has given his people in taking the message of his love through Jesus Christ to a needy world. Or in one word, redemption. Got it? But in order, whom shall I send? Uh, So somebody, and if they're not sent, Romans 10, then how shall they hear? And they've got to have a preacher. They've got to have a person uh, who is sent. So the mission field is the world. Now, did you ever hear the expression, you're either a missionary or a mission field? Good. Forget it once and for all, would you? That's not true. It takes, it robs, it robs the meaning of the word missionary. A missionary is normally, you can have different ways to describe it, it's a person who normally is called and sent to a people beyond their own culture and normally to another distant land. It doesn't mean you have to go to a distant land, but it's just that that's the normal idea, that's their vocation, that's their calling. So it's not technically true to say you're a missionary or a mission field. It's, te- it's, techni- it's generally true, but not technically. It's technically true to say every Christian is a witness, and you're either a witness or you're the mission field. Got it? But that doesn't make you a missionary. Some of you have not been called to be a missionary, but God has surely called you, if you trust in Christ, to be a witness for the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, the church of Antioch stands as the biblical model of what a sending church looks like. I say that not because they are just a missionary sending church, but because their heart was totally given over to God and to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and to his person, purpose, and plan. So God's heart is a missionary heart, and I can't experience the heart of God without seeing that passion. Now, most evangelical churches that I know, you know what that, they like to be called a, quote-unquote, missions-minded church, and they think they are. I know a lot of churches that are evangelical in doctrine, but have no right to call themselves a missionary-minded church. I know a lot of them like that. I know other churches that are really missionary-minded, and that is their heartbeat. Now, if you look at most evangelical churches, world missions is a piece of the pie. I want you to see these uh, two circles. It's a piece of the pie. That is, you got the music program, you got the children's program, you got the nursery, you got adult men, adult, and all that. And then you tack on a little piece of the pie called missions, okay? It becomes a program of the church like the other programs, okay? But if you look at the one on the left, what you see of a truly missionary-minded church is that the missions is at the hub of the wheel. It's in that circle at the hub. And everything of the ministries of the local church flow out of that great commission, which is redemption, which is the single thread woven through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so if I want to be a mission, not only a missionary-minded, if I want to be a missionary, a sending church, then that's got to be the heartbeat. That's got to be the hub. Every program of every evangelical local church can only be justified if it's at the hub of the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you, and though I'm with you unto the end of the earth. So let me say a few things and then we're done. One, church leadership must be worshiping and serving disciples and active in the sending. The church leadership. Now I'm especially speaking of pastors, elders, but also delegated authority. You got a lot of people in leadership who aren't a pastor or elder, but they're leaders they're people of influence so that's why I use the term the church leadership with focus on pastor and elders must be worshiping and serving disciples what a what an exciting group of people with this diversity of giftedness, diversity of ethnicity, with a passion to serve the Lord. Barnabas, a Jewish man from Cyprus. What's he known for? Just being an encouragement to he won this life he touches. Simeon, is also called Niger. Just think of Nigeria, okay? It means black-skinned, literally. So he was a a, a black-skinned man. And then you have Uh, Lucius from Cyrene, that would be in the present area of Libya on the north coast of Africa. Menaon, who lived among the nobility of his day, and apparently uh, was associated with Herod. And then not last but least would be Saul of Tarsus, who's later named the Apostle Paul, a man of great passion to serve the God of his fathers. What an exciting team in the local church. And if you read more about him earlier, you'd go back to Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30. You see him involved in evangelism, discipleship, encouragement, and teaching. And the key is verse 21 of Acts 11. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Isn't that a great word uh, to be able to say with your spiritual leadership, the hand of the Lord is with them. Let me say this. I can say that here at the church. I tell people, why join the church? Only one reason. I shouldn't say that why join a church? Only one main reason, okay? That is, you submit yourself to the authority of the spiritual leadership. Therefore, what is my counsel to every person joining the local church? Check out your spiritual leadership. Make sure they're according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. That's the kind of, we got them here, amen? We got them. We got great leaders, great pastors, okay? And so when you have that kind of spiritual example it doesn't take much to be submissive, at least to me. It's no argument with me. Not a hard time with me. Uh, we can talk, we can differ, we can do that, and that but basically you have this, this uh, church leadership and if I can even zero in more pastors and elders who must be worshiping and serving disciples active in the Sunday. Number two, the church leadership must be filled with the Holy Spirit and sensitive to His leading. Filled with the Spirit, sensitive to His leading. Now, Does God still speak to his people today? Of course he does. I hope you know God speaks to you or wants to speak to you. Now, let me just say this. I've never heard the audible voice of God, never. I don't pay much attention to dreams, although God uses dreams, I think. So I don't want to put him in a brown box. I've talked to many in the Muslim world, especially, that God brought the gospel to them primarily through the dream first or a vision. I've never experienced either one, except when I eat too much pizza the night before, and then, you know, I have weird dreams. Strange, really, really strange. So God moves, how does he normally move in my life personally or in your life? Probably uh, through Bible reading, probably through prayer, probably through the various circumstances of life you find uh, yourself uh, engage in, and, and that is how God is, is going to speak to your heart and also the counsel that you get at church, especially your spiritual leaders. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. Here we go, and manifest myself to him. Has God manifested himself to you lady? Don't miss out. He wants to commune with you. He wants to to lead you. But when the Holy Spirit does that, it should be confirmed by the spiritual leaders of the church, especially if we're talking about going into ministry or into the mission field, which is our focus today. I think this. I think God, I think the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a whole lot of stuff he had no part in to begin with. Okay? I want to do something so bad. Well, I could tell you stories. I'm not going to, but I could. I could tell you stories how I wanted something so bad, I convinced myself, that the Holy Spirit led me, and I told her the Holy Spirit led me. Try arguing against that. You know, you're not arguing against me, you're arguing against God. That's your problem, okay? Truth of the matter is, it was my problem, because I blamed him for doing some of the things Fletcher wanted to do. Not a very wise thing. That's why we need the counsel of others uh, outside us as well, especially in looking to the will of God. Now, You'll notice here in Acts 13, notice just one thing, verse 3. It says the spiritual leaders, Acts 13, 3, sent them off. While Acts 13, 4 says Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. No contradiction there. There's compatibility, do you get it? The Holy Spirit spoke to Barnabas' heart and Saul's about Paul's heart and said, I want you to go and take the gospel uh, to the Gentile world. Paul becomes the apostle of the Gentiles. Peter becomes the apostle to the Jews. That's how it's divided at. Book of Acts 1 to 12, emphasis on Peter to the Jews. 13 to 28, emphasize on Paul, uh, the the, the uh, message going to the Gentiles. But notice while the, the Holy Spirit sent him, then it says they were sent off by the spiritual leaders. And so the two go hand in hand. Now, here's the way I used to see it played out. Not picking on anyone, not saying God still hasn't used it, not saying God can't be glorified more. it, but I don't like it, okay? Here's the way I've seen what a lot of churches do, and it's really one of those things, you know, you have certain things that really get under your skin. Don't, don't talk to me about this. It gets under my skin, so don't do that to me, all right? But here's the way it happens. You get a nice young kid, and they're going up in the local church, and you say, boy, that kid has a serious purpose for the Lord. And you kind of sit back and say, the hand of the Lord is on that young man or that young lady. And then they get a little bit older, and the same thing. They just keep on growing, and they're seeking after God, and they're serious about the Lord. Uh, Then they come to a missions conference, and they get stirred in their heart, and they think, you know, maybe God wants me to be a missionary or a minister or called to the ministry, called to the mission field. And so what do they do? Well, then they start looking into a Bible college or Christian university, and they go to school. Then what happens at Obama College Christian University? Well, the president brings in guest speakers in chapels. You have chapels every day, five days a week or three days a week, whatever the college chooses, and they bring in missionaries representing mission boards from all around the world and the person sitting there and boy, they're just so moved and say, God's calling me to Ghana, Africa. I'm going to go to Ghana, Africa, that's, that's what God's calling me to do. But I think I'll check it out on a summer ministry team first. So they go in June or July, and they go over there, and they come back, and they tell the pastor, and they tell the elders, I think God wants me to go on a summer mission trip, and I need money, and I need prayer. Are we on board together? Sure. They get the money, they go to Ghana. They get their hearts stirred, they come back home, they finish their education. Now they're uh, searching out mission boards. They decide they're going to go with this certain mission board. They're going to go to Ghana. Then what do they do? come back to the church, come to the pastor, come to the elders, whoever it is, and say, I'm going to Ghana, and uh, I'm supposed to leave in 18 months, and I need $75,000 support, uh, along with some outgoing expenses, and I need the prayer of my local church and the support, and will you help me? Got it? That's how it happens most of the time. You know what I say? Give me a big red pen and put an X through that. They missed the boat about five to 10 years earlier. Okay? They missed the boat. It's not the kid's fault. The kid's doing what they think God put in their heart to do. It's a good thing. But back then when I saw, boy, I see God's hand on that person. I want to now come around them as a leadership. I want to embrace them. I want to encourage them. I want to guide them. I want to make sure we're doctrinally compatible Sometimes they go off on a lark, and they come back, and they want $75,000, but they're not in tune with the church. What's the church going to do? Like we can't support you. You're not in line with our doctrinal statement. Now the whole place blows up. But if that would have happened 10 years earlier, then you're moving in this wisdom of the ages, find out which way God is moving, Moving Now you're moving with God, okay? And then the church celebrates the sending out of that person to the mission field. I can tell you this, we sent 100 out. And you know what? It was the biggest celebration in the local church. It wasn't tacked on at the end of a sermon. It was the sermon. It was the focus. And the whole church, nothing's more exciting than that. You've done it here. I don't know how how far back you go, you done, but I know you've done it. You're going to hear from one of your missionaries you sent out not long ago. You'll hear in in the fall. So I'm saying there's a big difference there, and the spiritual leadership needs to take that leadership filled with the Holy Spirit, sensitive to its leading, and then they must set the example of generous giving and compassion. That's the third thing they got to set the example of generous giving and compassion. I could go on and on about that. I'm not going to do it. But I just want you to say, what was the demonstration of their most generous act that they made? the Giving money to help the church injurers? No. When they gave the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to go out from that church, and they blessed them and laid hands on them and sent them out. Now, just think how you'd feel next Sunday. If one of the elders will say, Paul steps up, I hear, he says, by the way, you've got an announcement to make. We are sending Pastor Rob and Pastor James to Uganda as missionaries. So you'll no longer have Pastor Rob or Pastor James. He's like, hey, you can't do that. You can't send them. Send Fletcher. Send anybody. Don't, (laughs) Don't send them. That's our Paul and Barnabas, you see? But they were giving. They were generous. And it's just shown in so many ways, but their hands were upon them, they were together. Okay, three thoughts and then I'm done, honest. A Sunday church must have a high view of God that permeates the body. Sunday church must have a, it's got to flow down. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Sin is awful. Sin separates man from a holy God. Sin demands death. Sin demands eternal separation from God. No compromise, no compromise. But God is also a, not only a holy God, a loving God. And his son is Son. And that's what we want to take to people around the world. It has to have a high view of God, high view of Scripture, obviously, that permeates the body. Number two, a Sunday body is mobilized from the top down, influences the whole body. We can be thankful for our pastors and elders. It flows from them. Okay? They delegate, et cetera, et cetera But it's got to be mobilized from the top down. Third, a Sunday church has homes that pass down the high calling of God, of serving God. You know, when, when we were pastoring in churches and we'd have missionaries come through all the time, and I'd always offer to anyone in the church family, would you like to have the missionary for dinner? Would you like them to stay in your home, hospitality? Most didn't, you know. Were, I think they were afraid of them. They thought they drank angel juice for breakfast instead of orange juice and, you know, just kind of flittered around and flew around with wings and things like that, and they were afraid of them. And we would gladly take them into our home. I wanted my girls to be exposed to these great servants of God. I wanted them to hear from them, hear their heart, influence them. And uh, I can tell you this, Miro and I, the ministry was always presented as a very high calling of God. Right or wrong, you can challenge us, I always presented it as the highest calling. Now, that doesn't make a second-class citizen out of anybody else. I don't mean it that way. But just the privilege. The privilege full-time with all my time, I don't have to spend 40 hours in the office at IBM. So will of God for some people. I get to invest my whole life in evangelism, discipleship, and pastoral care. What a joy and privilege that is. Charles Wesley put it to music, a charge to keep I have, so do you. You got a charge, redemption. A charge to keep I have, A God to glorify, wisdom of age, move with God, see which way he's moving. A never-dying soul to save and fit for the sky, to serve the present age. Serving another age, another, no, today, the present age, my calling to fulfill. May it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Holy Father of God, thank you for this flock here. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for our leadership. Thank you for their attentiveness to the word. And I pray you'd bless us and help us to be all that you have for us, uh, to be that kind of Sunday church on fire for God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.